Hello and welcome to the Matt Belair podcast. As an explorer of the mind and world, author and coach, I have spent a lifetime learning how to push my limits and achieve my highest potential. My mission is to bring you the most inspiring, conscious, and empowering teachers, leaders, and thinkers on the planet. To bring you stories, lessons, and messages that will help you master your mind, body, and spirit. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Good day, wonderful citizen of planet Earth. What a privilege and honor to be with you. We have a fantastic episode for you today. We have Bio Akamalafe, and in this one, we are going to touch on a ton of incredible principles. We're going to talk about him growing up in Nigeria, the two books he wrote, um, what it was like to be colonized. Uh, we talk about the self being much larger than we think, looking deeper into life, um, reconciliation in a real and practical sense, and what we can do for social change and social justice. We talk about the awakened being, enlightened principles, assemblage theory quantum physics and so much more this is really an incredible episode i know that you're going to enjoy it if you do like it please support the show by taking screenshots sharing them um, on instagram on facebook make sure to tag at matt belair so i can thank you personally um, you can also support on patreon if you go to patreon.com forward slash matt belair and toss a buck in the bucket it really goes a long way and i want to thank austin kerr so much for just going ahead and doing that it really makes a massive difference and i appreciate that leaving a review in itunes is also epic but the best thing that you can do today is do one act of kindness even better, do three acts of kindness every day for a week and just take the kindness challenge and make sure you let me know that you did that too. Um, it's an incredible experience and you may get a universal wink. Uh, something strange happened to you that the universe just says, hey, you're doing a good job. Um, for those of you guys who are interested in coaching, I've opened up the coaching practice to serve more people and I'm looking for two types of pers- people. The first is somebody eager that is ready to design their life from A to Z. So if you never even thought about what you're passionate about, what you do, but you're really passionate about uh, making a change and and moving towards something that makes an impact that fulfills you, um, we walk you A to Z through the process and how to define a life vision and get there. The second type of person is already an entrepreneur or already successful and wants to learn how to make an impact, more balance in their life, health, vitality, learning the art of flow state, peak performance, uh, making an impact and also any kind of like high performer athlete. Cause you know, that's just my background and always love working with athletes and coaches to share this stuff with kids. Because we, if we share this with kids, then they're going to get this and they're going to be able to use it their entire life. So if you're interested in that, go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching, sign up for the email list. And I want to thank so much my sponsor Himalaya podcast app, they are a podcast app that is designed for the listener in mind. So it's all about um, curating podcast listeners community. You can make playlists. You will find uh, similar podcasts. It's really simple, easy to use, fun. You can communicate. It's a really a great app. Um, and when you're over there, make sure to give the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Show a follow. And you can you can find them at HIM. A-L-A-Y-A over on iTunes and Android. So that wraps it up. Let's get into today's episode. But before we do, let's come into coherence by taking in a deep breath in through our nose. Holding that breath 
and just letting it out slowly with all the cares and all the worries of the day coming to a powerful state of peace, coherence, and empowerment. All right, let's get into this incredible episode with Bio Akomalafe. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind Body and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is an author, speaker, philosopher, lecturer, renegade academic, ethno-psychotherapeutic researcher, and proud diaper changer. He holds a PhD and is globally recognized for his poetic, unconventional, and counterintuitive take on global crisis, civic action, and social change. He is executive director and initiating, coordinating curator for the Emergence Network and has authored two books. He is visiting professor at Middlebury College, Vermont, and has taught in universities around the world. He is a consultant with UNESCO, leading efforts for the Imagining Africa's Future project. He considers his most sacred work to be learning how to be with his daughter, son, and his wife. Welcome to the show, Bio Akamalafe. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> Is it closed? Did I get it? <laughs> you were just, but it was good. It was good. Isn't it was it, good. You, you want to pronounce it properly so people can hear it? <laughs> you got the bio part. Right. Uh, the the, the Akoma part is, yeah, maybe just about 90%, and that's just good. Not bad. We're well, just meeting each other for the first time, so great. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, man. Well, it's nice to connect. In the middle part there, the executive, uh, executive director and initiating coordinating curator of the Emergence Network. I was like, this is like a tongue twister. Like this, I read it a couple of times. I was like, oh, dear, yeah. this is a challenge. <laughs> um, but man, it's nice to have you on the show. It's 3 a.m. where you are. Um, and you've had, uh, I don't know how to put it, uh, an experience today. You're going through something. Um, I don't know if you want to speak about that, a little bit about uh, your work and what you're doing, but I appreciate you being on the show today under the circumstances. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, well, I lost a mother, mentor, um, friend. Um, I would say her name, Professor Ize Obaya. She's Nigerian. And she basically is, um, there's a Japanese tradition called Ikebana that that deals with the arrangement of flowers, the floral arrangements to, to, to beautify or decorate something. And that was my nickname for her, Ikebana, because she basically uh, arranged me. She took a scrawny little kid and helped that kid realize that he had good questions. And it was good to be, uh, it was good to distrust the status quo. And it was just as well to ask new questions um, and to never be comfortable with normal realities. And so basically she set me up on the path that I'm on at the moment. And she died recently, uh, one of the most celebrated vice chancellors in Nigerian education. And um, yesterday was her, or yesterday, a few hours ago, was a service of songs. And... It was beautiful to watch, to see how many thousands of people or hundreds of people felt they were children from her. So it was good. It was good. And I honor her at this time and will always do. 
Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on for, you know, under the circumstances and um, I'm grateful to have you here. I looked at your bio and some of your work and it's really impressive. Um, I just love for you to just share with the audience a little bit about yourself, your background and how you got to where you are today and, and what you're up to. Um, <clears throat> you know, the question about my background and <laughs> what I'm up to are usually the most difficult ones to answer. <laughs> I would rather answer how to, uh, uh, what is life or obscure questions like that than answer questions about my background. But I would say this, that I'm, uh, well, I'm a recovering psychologist. Like I was, I was trained as a psychologist and my, um, my, I was set upon a very linear path from my training from the BSc and the MSc and eventually the PhD towards, uh, uh, you know, some career in, in the university and something, something, something disturbed my path. Something broke the algorithm of my progress. And in where I come from, they say that um, when you come to an obstacle, that's the richest place you could be. Because um, an obstacle allows you to shape shift. An obstacle is the uh, critique of continuation. It it breaks you and it allows you to become something other than what you were. So it's a rich place. It's a place of death. It's a place of uh, it's a place of composting the self. And um, meeting the Yoruba shamans, meeting my wife, I think about all these experiences as obstacles in my path that allowed me to become something other than what I would have become. Strain away from the algorithm of what bio would have been. Um, I, I taught in university, still do. Um, grew up in a land that was uh, defined largely by the Christian faith. And I, I lost my way. I lost my way. Yeah. And my people also say, and by my people, I should say that I'm from Nigeria. I'm from the Yoruba tribe in Nigeria. Um, my people say that if you want to find your way, you must become lost, generously lost. And you must allow yourself to be taken wherever, wherever. Probably it's the case that um, modernity is this very rigid system of being found and located. Um, it's, it's a way, it's an ontology of classifying and indexing and languaging and storing where we are in the world to the exclusion of other possibilities of presence in oneself. Um, but in becoming lost, we find our siblings. We kind of find the other parts of our bodies that modernity doesn't allow us to see. Filipino cosmologists will say, we will find our long bodies, if you will. We find our ancestral bodies. We find our large, monstrous bodies. And so my work today, this bio that has strayed and fallen off the righteous path, my work today is about sniffing out the, the, the perfume, the whiff, the invitation from other parts of our bodies that we've kind of lost and we do not know how to reckon with. So that's me in a poetic 
non-specific <laughs> lyrical sense. Well, that's interesting, man. Well, you have a, uh, a very fascinating background and you are an academic. And I guess when you take that road, it, it kind of projects you to one specific yeah. place, you know? And so you broke away from that. You're, you're doing a lot of, a lot of things. Do you want to talk about some of like the books that you wrote and what's in there or some of the work you're doing with the IAF, right? Uh, oh yeah. Oh, I, well, starting with the book, I, I wrote a book um, instigated by my friend, Charles Eisenstein, um, who you might know. Um, I wrote a book called These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home. And, and, and the book was basically about um, the promise I made to my daughter the first time I saw her, the first time I held her. It was basically the promise I made to be a good father and to, to prepare her a home in a world that is largely structured to make her invisible because of the way she looks, because of her race, because of, um, because of her gender. And um, I wrote those letters to her, they're a form of letters, to speak about a word that I may never be in touch with, I may never step foot in. Uh, I don't want to call it a new world, I don't want to project some kind of uh, linearity of history that we're heading towards this grand age where everything will be neat and tidy and good and just. Um, but I wrote about a world that I hope um, makes notices her and sees her for all the beauty and all the um, dynamic transraciality. I came up with a word um, or decided to reinvent the meaning of a word called it transraciality, basically speaking about how we are part of each other and how we come from each other and how the postmodern discourse that we're immersed in today doesn't quite touch on the dynamics of how math and bio are, are rapturously entangled with each other in spite of how we might see our races. Um, so, so that's what I, that's what I do intend in, in terms of writing and speaking, just basically hacking into the uh, normative and, and inviting people into the shamanic and saying there are the other ways of seeing and participating and practicing the world and listening to it. Uh, what if the problems that we count as problems, what if the way we see those problems is part of the problem? What if there are other ways of thinking and dancing with this? My work at the IAS is uh, a consultancy um, role. There's a group in UNESCO that is called the Imagining Africa's Future, um, which is basically about saying the future that has been promised to us by giant institutional processes that says, by this year, we'll all be this. Um, what if there are other futures? What if there are other ways of conceiving of time and temporality? And what does Africa have to do with this? So if you know anything about the continent and the history of uh, discrimination and subjugation and oppression and colonialism, um, 
our own ways of seeing, our own ontologies, our own ways of knowing the world um, are suppressed or basically denied. Our philosophies are, are pushed aside and we're invited to think that the only way to think about the world is in this modern, incredibly white sense. And there is no other way to think about the world. Um, but, but there is an invitation afoot. There's a plot afoot in the world today that says, hey, look, look closely. Um, there is no foundation to civilization. There are many other things you can be accessing. And basically my work with those processes are to open up space for that. Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah, that's interesting because for me being here in Canada, you know, I only get the tip of the iceberg about what's happening over there and, uh, or even in the world in general, you know, we're really lucky. I'm really lucky to be Canadian. I'm really lucky to have the opportunities that I have. And I think a lot of people, you know, like I've done a lot of traveling and seeing in it different ways countries work different opportunities that people have so it's important you know like we have a lot of luxury here and i think people miss that um so i think that the work you're doing there is important and hopefully um it will it will end up fruitful um what i wanted to ask about as well is you have a course on the young platform which looks really fascinating um i kind of dove through the course curriculum and um i like basically the outline of it. So I don't know an intelligent way really to formulate a good question, like to begin with, because it's really like, as I'm looking at it, each one I imagine is pretty deep. Do you want to like walk us through like what the intention is behind the course and what you hope to give people with it? Okay. Um, it, the, the course is called making sanctuary, right? Um, and I could tell you a story about what that means or what evoked or called for that. Um, but I'll just premise it. I'll just libate the ground a, a little, if you will. Um, so most of us grow up in circumstances um, and do not actually understand the um, the textures of those worlds that we are immersed in. Um, I grew up in a country and in a time when I was told that the only way to actually be proper, to be adequate in the world, was to deny my own indigenous realities, was to, um, was to um, speak like the um, BBC reporter on television. And so our principal would literally wheel out a television screen and invite us to approximate the manners of speech that we were listening and watching. And basically it was a way of saying, hush, you know, just shut up and keep quiet and forget all your histories and wisdom and the dynamics of your own body and your own context and listen to this, watch this. And that's the essence of colonization. It's about, um, it's about denying context and noticing the universal, the so-called universal. Um, and so most of us are brought up in, in lands and in, in a time when um, that I would characterize as modernity that basically hides from us how much is subsidized for us to actually have the things that we have. Um, I don't know if you know this story, 
by Ursula Le Guin. Do you know Ursula Le Guin? She's a sci-fi writer, um, beautiful writer. She died recently. And there's a beautiful story about a town she called Omelas in one of her books, a short story called uh, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And um, in that story, she tells a, she tells a, you know, she tells a tale of a, the most advanced city that you could ever imagine. Matt, imagine all your dreams about justice and well-being and all of that just became embodied by one central city. I don't know where you are in Canada, but Vancouver or Toronto, I'm not sure where you are, but um, imagine that your city became an exemplification of all your highest values. And that's what the author invites us to notice, that this town is the, it, it's happy, it's scientifically advanced, they're emotionally authentic and real to each other, uh, there's integrity, there's political stability, there's, uh, there's even righteousness on the scale of, you know, moving into the religious dimension. There's beauty everywhere. There's cultural appreciation. Um, and we're led to imagine that this is the highest we can ever seek to imagine. Or, I mean, we could ever try to approximate as a species. But somewhere in the dark corners of that city, there is a dark, wet place where there are wardrobes and closets. And in those closets, in one of those closets, is a child. It's uh, in fact, the author refuses to call the child a child. It just says it's an it because of the level of depreciation and dehumanization that the child has experienced. And so the child is there in the closet and the child is locked up, hardly has any company, doesn't have any company at all, actually, and is treated like uh, an animal, worse than a pet. Uh, the child occasionally sticks its hand out of the wardrobe and says, let me out, I'll be good. I'll be, I'll be real, I'll be okay, just let me out. Someone just give me some company, but no one responds. Once in a while, the door opens to the room and someone slips in some food to the child and walks away. So the child is like imprisoned. Now you would imagine in, that in an ethically just society such as this, um, everyone, or no one knows, sorry, no one knows about this child, but it's actually the case that almost everyone does. In fact, the city takes it as part of its practice to introduce people to the existence of this child. They literally have tours that pass by the child and say, that's the child, that's it right there. Now, none of them try to set her free because in the moment that they do, in the moment you reach out a hand of compassion to this it, to this dehumanized it, um, all of the city's progress will die. All of the city's uh, happiness would disappear. All the advancements, all the, uh, the sense of justice, everything would disappear. The lives of millions of people would suddenly perish or disappear. And that's the paradox, that's the riddle. And so, um, you know, taking this in, some people cannot stand it and they just walk away from the city, not knowing what to do. And now I tell you this story because I think the author uses this as a way of inviting us to notice that bodies have consequences and 
some of the time we're not invited to notice the itch, the excluded, the marginalized that live at the edges of our normality, of our suburbia, of our everyday existences, of our luxuries. And until we come to terms with that, we will continue to perpetuate a modern day crisis that is leading to um, climate change being the least of them. Not just climate change, not just uh, biocultural degradation, not just the loss of species, not just the toxification of our oceans, but the very death of what it means to be human. And so this course is basically about unthinking mastery. Um, it's about noticing that for a long time we have approximated or tried to think of ourselves as, go as gods, as lords of creation, gliding over the surface of things, um, never exactly alighting to the ground, never exactly feeling our entanglement with the earth. And uh, that's mastery. That's a paradigm of mastery. And it's gotten us into a lot of mess. It's gotten us into colonization, imperialism, uh, the fascist desire for walls now. It's gotten us into a lot of mess. And now we must come to terms with that. And so this course is about, this course is about touching and witnessing. I like to call it witnessing, not witnessing, but witnessing. It's about witnessing the excluded. It's about noticing the, the world that has been pushed aside and then staying with that trouble long enough like an obstacle to be shape-shifted by it. That's one entry point. Holy crap. Well, man, that's super powerful. I was actually talking to um, my partner today and I was basically expressing, because every now and then this will happen, um, I get real upset about just the world and how it is and how it seems that nobody gives a F-bomb, like a hard F. You know, it's just like, why are we not paying attention to to this stuff? You know, and like... Uh, yeah talking with the native American elder and studying with him last summer, you know, he's always given money to homeless people and things like that. And just like, look at them and get their name. And I consider myself to be a pretty kind and compassionate person. And uh, I would give, give, you know, homeless people money here and there. That, that was, I would do that, but I would never get their name. And it's like, Oh my, like, where's the humanity in that? And so, you know, you're opening up a, like a deep can of worms here. And I've recently had a, a, I went to the Parliament of World Religions and that was a challenge and I had to write about that um, because I want to be okay. compassionate towards people's beliefs. Um, but when you discover something like, uh, like, uh, like your school, like who was telling you that? Like the Native Americans, you go to those tribes that came over and Catholic Church and Christianity, they basically, you know, they did really terrible, terrible atrocities to the indigenous and they are doing it in Africa. They did it in Africa, you know, telling you to not be, it's just incredibly fucked up. Awful. You know, it, like sweet home Alabama. So bad. I just want to swear a long slew of words. And it's so crazy because the compassion part comes for like people who go on those missionary things, you know, they believe they're doing a good thing. You know, they, they believe it's right. good, but that's what colonization is. It's like I equate it to Nazi Germany. It's, a, it's an intense thing, but it's the same because, you know, when people were in like Hitler's army, there were good people in there, but they were following like a directive. 
You know, what are the, right. where are these directives coming from? Where, where are these social norms coming from? Even if you look at America and like, you know, what black people have to deal with still today, what they did, they, they only got rights like in the, was it 50s or something stupid? You know what I mean? They were literally, white people were just killing, like owning people. That's, that's yeah. so recent in our history. That is incredibly frigged up. And so we obviously have a long way to go, especially with countries occupying other countries. So I guess I would throw it back to you and, and, and ask your take on social change, what we can do for these big problems that it doesn't seem a lot of people want to look at at all. And then, and then also, as a side note, might be one and the same, but how do we get to that place like a kid like you telling them to fit in and like ignore your culture? Or, you know, we even have that as like, Girls want to be a, look a certain way because they see it on TV. That's a little bit. You had the maximum right. version of, right. you know, a scenario. So how do you give like that person the courage to be themselves when culture is being so hard on them to find that freedom and and uh, I guess connection to truth and 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 life and I don't even know how to phrase it well, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Right, right. Um, um, there. Well, I could, I, I would speak to the, the whole be yourself thing in a, in a sec. But let me start from compassion. And noticing that compassion, as you do, maybe you, you don't use the language that I do, but kindness and compassion, you're not, you're not inherently stable virtues. Like, like if I experience this feeling, this affect, this kindness, then I'm good. So, so there, there is a sense in which our ethical, um, there's this superstructure, if you will, uh, there's this architecture of feeling, this apparatus that invites us or produces us um, as persons that feel or that strive for some internal co cohesion. Like if you're good on the inside, if every part of you is aligned, whatever alignment means at this point, at this point in time. So if you're aligned, if it's a straight line within, you know, then you're good, you're okay. Then that's all you need to struggle for. Um, and this internalization of stuff, this, this navel gazing, um, belly focusing, um, you know, uh, <laughs> self-psychologizing gaze that tells us to look within and forget the without, I feel is part of the things that are um, creating the kind of upheavals that we're seeing in the world today. Because the world is taking its claim. The material world, the material uh, urgency of being different, all of these are staking their claims and saying, look beyond yourself, the so-called boundary self that you've been, thought, uh, you've been taught to believe is all it takes to be in this world. Look beyond yourself. Because the self is bigger than what you think it is. The self isn't, it isn't just some coherent form. The, the, the metabolism is larger. Mass isn't just mass in Canada. Mass is produced by, by everything that mass has, um, you know, maybe not noticed or seen. Mass is produced by the invisible. Mass is produced by ancestors. Math is an ongoing production of the world at large, and you will never get yourself together. So here, here's the point where I, I, I stopped inviting people as a shrink, as a psychologist, to put themselves together when I noticed that people were so far apart and 
so broken and detracted across space and time. Um, so compassion is political. And you're right. This, most people come in the name of conversion, in the name of evangelization, in the name of good. And they perpetuate different forms of crises. They, they basically step people, step on people, and step on their rich traditions, and step on other ways of being. This doesn't make them bad. So I'm trying to break down that binarization of ethics or morality. It's either you're good or you're bad. I think we're neither. I think we're central. And this opens up different spaces for how we relate with the world. Um, and this also dives into segues. It's a beautiful segue into this topic of social change. Um, I told this story to a group of, uh, online recently, and I would just say it again. Um, and it, I think it plays up with the idea of being good as well. I read about two years ago, or I, I forget very easily, whether it's last year or two years ago, a story about a lady who walked into Walmart. They don't have Walmart in Nigeria, thank goodness. Um, but she walked into Walmart, and uh, though we have everything else, sorry, we have everything else, yeah. I think we have McDonald's and KFC and all of that. She walked into Walmart, and she bought herself a bag, a brand new bag, and went home, and opened up the bag, and within the bag, she saw a note, and on the note was writing she didn't understand, which she later knew to be a Chinese script. And um, she didn't know how to interpret it. And so she called someone who spoke the language and someone interpreted it. And basically what it said was this, I'm paraphrasing, that I am a prisoner in a Chinese cell. It was in, it was in newspapers. Uh, I forget which, uh, but American. I'm, I'm a prisoner, and we're forced day in and day out to make bags like this one. If we don't do it, we're beaten up, we're, we're denied food, we're denied water, we're denied clothing. But we do it, we have to do it. Um, so if you can help, help save us. And that was part of the bag. <laughs> that was part of the history, the rich history of that bag. Now I say that because um, <clears throat> dancing with this idea of modernity and mastery again, our perceptual cultural habits invite us only to notice the badge or the logo, right? So whatever that bag was, Dolce and Gabbana, Versace or whatever, we invite you to notice just the crest. Notice the crest, that's all the story you have to learn about this product here. But the bag was richer than the crest. It's stretched out across space-time. It had implications, just like chaos theory teaches us. It had implications in China. The bag was a political product. It wasn't political after the fact. It was already part of the incarceration system in Asia. Imagine that. And, um, you know, her response was beautiful. Uh, beautiful in, in terms of how in terms of exciting my own research interests, which is how do we respond to crisis? How do we respond to issues that we want to do something about? And she basically said, I would like to do something about this. I would like to call or find out more about this person, maybe even send money to this person. 
And what I noticed about that seemingly innocuous response was basically the way she, um, she totally missed out. There was a huge blind spot, an elephant in the room, that she was already part of a stream of doing that led to that purchase, to that moment. It wasn't about what do I do now about social change. It was about basically what am I already a part of and how do I fit with that for a moment before rushing into doing stuff again, right? Because she had in, inadvertently perpetuated the system, the incarceration system, that that Chinese, that nameless, anonymous Chinese prisoner was already a part of. And here is the invitation here to notice the entangling, entwining, tentacular limbs that connect us to suffering and emancipation and race and becoming and biocultural regeneration and whatever, you know, we, those things that were thought that were, I mean, invited to cut out of our, uh, of our vision, you know, and to think that this is all there is to me. She was already part of it. So basically, my own take on social change is settled into what I would call a, a, a black feminist, post-human um, notion of the world that, that, that says, uh, and by, uh, by all of that, which might be lots of taken, it, it, it notices that um, bodies are exclusionary that just to be alive and present and real and, and three-dimensional, if you will, is to exclude something else from, from happening. Um, so how do we settle and sit with that for a moment? How do we get rid of the idea that we can language and language the world, that the world is flat, that the world has no consequences, that it's basically just a flat place for us to rush into take our claims, plant our flags, and insist that we have it all right with us? How do we sit with the suffering? This is all bound up in this notion of mastery. And so the course, again, is, is, about, is about touching our long bodies, is about touching our limbs, is about reacquainting ourselves with the, um, the illusion. Now, I don't want to call it an illusion. Illusion is something representational. It's about sitting with the complexity of social change. That social change is not about human beings anymore. It's not about human agency. You know, we, we tend to centralize humans in the project of social change. This is us to the exclusion of the world at large. But now we're noticing, we're noticing a world that is just as alive and sensuous and powerful as we thought we were uh, unilaterally. How do we sit with that, brother? I don't exactly know, but I know that we have to do that kind of work. And it's complex work, it's powerful work, and maybe it's the only kind of work we can do in the Anthropocene, this time of demise and breakdown. Hmm. <clears throat> when you talk about the long body, it makes me feel like... Uh... Um, just like your interconnectedness with everything, like the understanding yeah. that what you do has an impact greater than you might imagine, you know, the purchases you right. make, the interaction, right. uh, what you do for a job right. or a vocation, um, you know, what you do to take care of your, like it just has a, a greater impact. 
Um, and it's an interesting way to look at it. I think that I think I'll just dive deeper uh, on that aspect because it's just been coming up, up a lot for me lately. You know, my process of of becoming who I am, it was I I would watch. Uh, I only had two channels as a kid, and um, one of them would just show uh, these famine videos. Um, forget what it is now. World World Hunger World World Vision or some some crap, and it would just show people starving to death, and my brain just it didn't make any sense i was like i got all this stuff i look around like we got you know when everybody just get together there's lots of people with millions and they 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 put up a group of money right and then you got rice and then they're not starving like that doesn't seem that hard to fix if you wanted to fix that it actually does not seem that difficult then i go down the rabbit hole and i went way down <laughs> for years we're talking the money system we're talking governments right. we're talking all of that. I don't know if you've gone down those holes. We're talking energy. I live there. I live in those holes. (laughs) Okay, cool. So then what I kind of deduce it for, for people who aren't in that, and like I would say conspiracy is just like kind of like truth of like the history of the winners, the kings and queens, the conquerors, you know, when you're going conquering, you're, of course, you're with the tribe. It's like, ha, we have a better technology of warfare. Now we're going to take your crap. You know, that's what's happened. And then you have the books and then, then with that book has to come a religion because you have to connect to something higher. And that's how everybody congregates and you control masses of people since the beginning of time. You can figure it out if you do some research, but not a lot of people want to do that. So these, (laughs) these systems are still in place. These, these organizations, these systems, these slow moving cogs of materialism and control and war and friggin' pretty much evil. Um, you know, some people go, it's, it's evil. It's terrible. What do you think like from your perspective and your upbringing? Um, and I find it interesting too. some of the things like, I feel like I have to be unnecessarily soft because they get like a, a scapegoat because people are ignorant to the fact of what they're actually doing. You know, then they get this like kind of right. pass where he's like, no, like that's actually like, let's just imagine you're, tr- you're, you're living your life, a group of, um, well-meaning Christians, Catholics, uh, Mormons or whatever with more money, more influence come in. Then they create a school and a church from what you have a history of that. I don't know how long your history is, hundreds of years, thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years. They tell you what to do and how to connect to nature and spirit in their way. And they think they're doing a good thing. When you understand what's actually happening, why can't you just say it for what it is? It's like, look, I know you're well-meaning, but like that faith doesn't, doesn't give you a pass to do something completely fucked up. You know what I mean? Right, this is right, wrong right. in every sense of what it should be to be a human. And you're doing it right. systematically at a great scale and it needs to stop. And I find it challenging because then I'm like in this world of like, look, I, it's okay to believe what you want to believe. It's okay to have those things and it's okay to want to share it. But there comes a point when you're actually doing harm and we need to be able to talk about this in, in, in an open way. And I think it gets intense when you get into the religious conversation and the governmental conversation. People get really passionate about it, but people are getting really harmed. Like in China, uh, they have organ harvesting. And I worked on something called the International Tribunal for Natural Justice. And since then, because of that work that they did on the inquiry and organ harvesting, the sex trade, which is massive and awful and disgusting, um, happening right now. Now there's high-ranking officials at the Vatican going down. There's there's all these things happening because of that. And it's not to say the people in those um, organizations are are all bad. There's millions of beautiful people, 
But organizationally and, and from the leadership perspective, a lot of terrible shit's happening. And when you know that, and then they have so much power, um, there's a movie I watched about it in Boston, you know, and I forget it was a Boston about like exposing the Catholic church and then how challenging it was because of the ingrained right. beliefs. And so it's right. a challenging touchy. Right. What's that? Spotlight was the movie. Spotlight, probably. a brilliant movie. So, yeah. you know, I feel like on one hand, I feel so much pain and empathy and, and frustration and solid anger. Like, do I have to go Liam Neeson on everybody? You know what I mean? Is that the only way to get change? I've got this super agent. like take everybody else. And then, but you know, when it's a money system, someone else is going to come in kind of like take out the mafia head. Someone else comes in. Um, so that's like my rant of like being just, kind of sometimes the challenge for me is feeling helpless and i'm just wondering if you want to speak on any of that rant and add or subtract because uh. <laughs> you've you've you know you're one of those people who lived it a lot more intensely you know right 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 um there there um let me tell a story two stories if you will one shorter considerably shorter than the other um the the um the first one is we were in Richmond, Virginia, a couple of years ago, I think three or four years ago. My daughter was turning two, and we were living in this residential space that had a lake nearby and a swimming pool as well, um, accessible to the residents, of course. Um, and I don't swim. I don't swim. Um, and we're on schooling our daughter. Uh, struggling with what education might mean in this time uh, for children of the Anthropocene, which is it's not another issue. It is part and parcel of what we're talking about, about on thinking mastery and noticing the world in new ways and what you've been talking about as well, Matt. Um, so one day I decided, I came up with this crazy Jim Carrey-esque experiment and said, I will say yes to uh, everything my daughter says. Yes to everything. Now, don't try this at home if you have kids. Right. Um, to anyone listening as well, I said, I'm going to say yes to everything she says um, today, just today, just for today. Um, and so I told her, I announced it, I, I, I the manifesto that morning, and she, 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 took, she, took, she took me on, you know, she took it on full on and decided to, to run with it. So here's this toddler. She says, Basically, Dada, let's go swim. And so I say, yes, of course, yes, because that's where I'm at at the moment. And so she dragged me out of the house um, in my flip-flops, and we're just going to the swimming pool, or so I presume. Um, because when we get to the swimming pool, and I'm about to take the right turn into the, the, the space, uh, she says, that's the swimming pool. And she's pointing at the lake. And I thought I'll be able to get by with swimming in the pool, but, or at, at least pretending to swim. But she turns me to the lake, and I'm like, okay, yeah, yes, let's go to the lake. And as we're, we're heading to the lake, um, she decides, you know, just the things that children do when you give them space to do it. I think, I think we should really follow our kids, uh, ironically, instead of, shaping them to follow our own systems. Um, she says, stop. And I stop. And then she says, uh, let's change uh, slippers. 
wear mine and I'll wear yours. So I squeeze my huge feet into her tiny flip-flops and she wears my giant slippers and then we're, we're marching along. This time, at this point, we're already arousing interest from nearby joggers, you know, who are looking and wondering what's happening here. And um, uh, we, get to the, we get to the lake and she's just standing. We, we're just standing there. Nothing doing, just standing and looking. We're ducked nearby. Um, I don't pay attention to that. It's a beautiful scene. Um, and I feel inspired to just have a father-daughter moment. I feel like telling her about her people, you know, or just basically saying, you know, telling her how much I love her. And maybe just a Kodak moment, you know what I mean? Something I can write about. <laughs> um, and then she says, as I begin to speak, she says, shh. And I'm like, okay. So we just be quiet and we're silent. We're silent for what feels like eternity. And we're holding hands to picturesque figures by the lake with dogs nearby and everything's happening. Um, and it's at that moment. Now, I like to say this. I like to uh, preface this, what I'm about to say, by saying nothing miraculous happens in the conventional sense of a miracle. The, rib, the lake doesn't part into two. A Moses figure doesn't appear out of the mist. Uh, angels do not pierce out of the clouds. Nothing of that sort happens. I don't become enlightened. I don't be, begin to levitate. But something dramatically ordinary happens. And I can only describe it as dramatically ordinary, um, which is even a higher decibel than extraordinary, in my opinion. Because I, be, I start to notice how ordinary and beautiful everything is at once. I notice the quack quacking of the ducks. I notice how the winds are rushing through the leaves. Um, I notice an ant nearby struggling in the lichens and just just going, making its way, like it's trying to get home to its family. I just notice things. And I don't know if I could describe it this way, but it's like having black and white TV. And then one day, just one day in one single moment, someone just brings this stereo vision, this color, everything just bursts into life. It's, that's the only way I can describe it. It's like I'm doing, I'm standing there doing absolutely nothing, but I notice how everything is doing something. You know, and it's, it's, it's not dependent on me, it's not dependent on consciousness, it's not dependent on my agency. It's just that I'm immersed in a world that is rich, too rich. For, to be condensed into a neat ideology or a neat manifesto or a neat website. It's, it's just bursting with contradiction and instability and discomfort and comfort and life and death. And um, uh, to cut the long story short, she eventually breaks through my feelings of elation and she tells me to put mud on my face. And this is where it begins to get really dark, <laughs> real fast. Because she says, take the mud, put it on your face, have some, put it in your mouth. And that's where I absolutely draw the line. I'm like, nope, we're going home. This is where the yes experiment ends. I'm not putting no mud in my mouth. And so <laughs> we decide to walk back home. <laughs> my, wife, my wife is 
so livid, angry with us. <laughs> and she just she just does like this and sends us. I don't know if people are seeing basically like that and sends us into the bathroom and says, "I don't want to hear it. Just just you guys go wash." And 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 I in my book I I write that um um the stains washed up that day, but the only stain that remained was the stain of being touched by a universe, by a world that is compellingly larger than myself. Um, and in fact, I don't even know what we're talking about. I just got lost in the story. Yes, I was going to tell you another story, and it, 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 it plays with this one as well. You see, the, the thing about, you know, those things we're uh, talking about, um, my my father used a chewing stick, right? You probably don't know what a chewing stick is. But it was something like a branch. And that's what he used to brush his mouth. He was very modern and stuff. You know, in such as he was an ambassador. Uh, but he used this. I used to run down the street. He would tell me to go buy this chewing stick. And they would cut it like just a branch. Nothing. They don't apply. They don't drum, do some sonic driving or enchant the branch or something it's just a damn branch and they would slice it and make it white and expose it its stomach its guts if you will and i would take it back to my father and he would use that to brush his his mouth and i always um thought of my dad as primitive because i was schooled i was properly schooled and i felt this is primitive stuff you know, because I was part of a, a world that told me that the proper thing to do is to use a toothbrush and toothpaste and brush up and down, sideways, diagonally, and that's how to take care of yourself orally. And if you're using a tree branch, you're definitely primitive. And then follow that trajectory for a while. Um, with, with, with brushes and toothpaste, we, we started to have this new ones that that um that have um plastic stuff in them. I don't bother to know the name, but uh, those plastic things promise us with incredibly rich graphics on TV, you know, showing in three dimensions how they whoosh into the scene and kill all the plaque and everything that is plaguing us, basically. And and so we went for those ones we, because the other ones were inadequate. And so we went for the ones with plastic. And now we're in a stage where they're telling us, no, no, fluoride is bad. It's bad for you. And um, those plastic things we promised you would take care of you, they're actually seeping into your sinks and back into the ocean and into the fish that comes to your table. And so you're eating poison. And you're, <laughs> you're in a toxic carcinogenic system. And so maybe we should use um, healthy, eco-sensitive pro uh, uh, products like uh, a tree branch. <laughs> and so we've gone like full circle and we're back. And the things that were once primitive are now enticing because the modern project is collapsing. And uh, so uh, l let me say this as well, that I write about whiteness a lot. I don't write about whiteness as, as uh, a system of recognizability, using the term of a writer called Rosie Brydotti. I, I don't 
I don't write about it as an essentializing attribute. I write about it as a pyramidal scheme, uh, a large um, equal um, terraforming machine that arranges bodies in a particular power system and notices some bodies as privileged over other kinds of bodies. Um, and this is what I, I call whiteness. So, so that it's not the sense that uh, Matt is um, intrinsically white. It is a sense in which maybe we are all part of this system of whiteness. And maybe, as I wrote in an essay called Dear White People about two or three years ago, I am white. Um, I am participating in a system that treats the world in certain, certain ways, that treats certain bodies in certain ways, that says the only way to get by is monetarily. The only way to calculate economic expansion, uh, if we already take that as a value, is with GDP and all of that. The only way to think about the self is as an embodied self, separate from the other, otherizing different or excluding different. Um, and, and so we're, we're kind of locked up in a system of power that is problematic because it doesn't allow me to reach out to you, Matt. Um, I like to say that um, forgiveness, forgiveness is settling debt, but reconciliation is troubling boundaries. And I think that's where we need to move to now, because we're kind of locked in a side side conversation. I'm on this side and you're on this side. And sometimes we need to do that for survival. Um, we need to we need to raise up walls. We need to defend values we need to defend history we need to fight against the the rage the flattening rage of modernity and its insistence that nothing is alive and we can plant an oil pipe in this river and damn you to hell because the world is open for us and why shouldn't we do it anyway we should listen to your mountains mountains are not alive um so there's a time to defend but i think that kind of work can be complemented by something different. And that, that other thing is about composting whiteness. Composting whiteness, of course, meaning, if I could speak about it in a single breath, it's about noticing our long bodies. So it's about noticing that Matt is connected with me in a way that the, the enemies of my ancestors are also my ancestors, as Stephen Jenkinson would say that we are connected and sensuous and sexy <laughs> in rapturous ways and that we have to stay with this and we have to meet this and reconcile with this. So the work of reconciliation is about troubling the boundaries between ourselves. It changes our notion of social change. It changes our notion of trying to fix the world because we cannot fix the world. A world that is larger than our ideologies, our ability to describe it, definitely cannot be fixed. How do we humble ourselves in a time of crisis? How do we come down to earth? This is the question that animates my work, the course that is coming, and probably I hope I've spoken to some of the themes that came out while you were speaking. Yeah. Wow, man, that was a really beautiful set of stories. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think you, you touched on a lot of things with the stories it's it's this 
I've definitely yeah. missed some, right? Yeah, it's a situation that's obviously doesn't have an easy answer, you know. And I think right. that uh, your daughter's story is also freaking hilarious. Um, but I love when you said dramatically ordinary, and um, had a discussion with a new friend, Daniel, and he. Um, has been with these teachers that came from Taiwan. They're, I'm actually in Nelson, British Columbia. So I'm in like a small mountain town in the middle. If you imagine like Canada in like those over like remote kind of Canada, I'm kind of like that. This little town. It's awesome. Um, but he's been studying with these two um, Dao De Jing teachers for five years. And they came from Taiwan because apparently they got some sort of spiritual message to come to the mountains in Canada. And they have this little okay. shot. And they've been doing it for free for years. And these two old people like are legit. And uh, one okay. of the things that he spoke about, you know, I watched him. He did his actually, I was there present for his first uh, teaching and he chose a chapter and he talked about being, um, saying that this is the life that you want. You know what I mean? Like we want to be in, in, this is the human experience, you know, like this is the experience you're looking for. And I phrase it as this is the consciousness you're looking for. So when you're sitting there with your mm -hmm. daughter, present and everything opens up and you see and kind of get this idea of how vast it is because in the spiritual world right we're looking um, for enlightenment that's trying to find enlightenment forever and we had a discussion on that too and i'm curious your thoughts on it just as a general thing because you know right. you get to this disappointing thing because you think it's a state of mind where you and this isn't to suggest that i'm enlightened it's just what i've come from lots of research and friggin' trying every single thing um i'm gonna get to this point i guess as much you know, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm gonna get to this point where I'm just gonna float around on a cloud. And what mm -hmm. enlightenment is to me is, um, and, and Daniel kind of phrased it like this too, is like responsibility. You know, showing up on time, um, being uh, full of integrity, um, doing a like understanding your long body, understanding the mm -hmm. choices you make and how they impact people, uh, stopping to help. You know, it's not an easy thing. And that's why so few people do it. And when you have that awakening moment, like, oh, you know what? I could go do this and, and change this career that might be not to pick on oil people. But for example, you put an oil pipe in the ground and, you know, you're making oil. That's, that's one thing. You pay for the bills, but maybe you want to do something else that would have an impact on one person or 10 people or a community of people. And you're now more aware. And so that's when it takes the courage to go act that way. And the first thing is understanding, and I like how you kind of phrase like sitting with it for a moment, that you're a part of this, that you are like, this is, you have to fully accept also what's happening. And I see that as like uh, a trait of what I would refer to as awakened man or enlightened person would be, uh, or woman, um, would be you take 100% responsibility, you know, and then you understand that um, it's not what I can get, what can I give, how can I help, how can I contribute? And that if you kind of go with that kind of mind frame, it's a little bit different. You're starting to realize how much you're interacting with the environment because what's been coming up a lot for me on the podcast and understanding these things is that we're, we're living in such an artificial world. People give mm. us this world and they perpetuate it through, used to be book, now it's television, mm. screen, social media. Mm. And it's just so artificial where you just sit with your daughter and look at the lake and then, oh, boom, like, oh, wow, I'm alive. And holy smokes, mm -hmm. there's a lot of wild stuff going on when I'm present. Um, and so mm -hmm. it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, kind of where we are going with it, and I'm glad we did, it's just looking at, like for me, again, those, those problems of the world that are so big and so vast and so heartbreaking. And what is it mm. that I can do? You know, anything, mm. you know, I'll do anything. And that's how I ended up, got, you know, working with the International Tribunal for Natural Justice, you know, volunteering for a few months, just trying to get the word out and helping them with their marketing and things like that. 
because it's so frigged up. So I think for me, it's just that, like you said, the first step is like having an awareness of just the big picture um, and sitting with that and realizing that you are a part of it. And if you realize that and take responsibility, you can do something that will make an impact. You know, it could be as simple as that, like you're super racist and then you just, you're just like less racist. And then all of a sudden you're not racist. That's a, that's a, could be a big win for a bit. You know what I mean? You have to like change it, like, you know, little baby steps, but then you tell your buddies, you know, to pipe down. I think it's, it's such a vast, incredibly intricate issue. And I guess what I wanted to ask is what do you have for advice on just like the personal journey? Um, You know, people go through the world with incredible struggles. You know, you talk in your course here in the outline a little bit about like hope and hopelessness, um, changing the actor, which I'm curious about, but um, just advice for, I guess, understanding ourselves and our interaction. And if you you kind of touched on a little bit, but what is it from your view that a a person could do or a group of people to make a positive social impact? Hmm. Okay, um, so this is another rich one that, you know, uh, that opens up a whole can of worms, and worms are not that bad when you think of the air rich, the soil, and speaking of soil, and speaking about all the things you, you're wanting me to speak about, let me, without dismissing um, the rich and beautiful traditions um, that speak about enlightenment, um, and invite people to be aware and conscious and present. Without dismissing any of that, let me put forward um, a, a totally spontaneous uh, and conversational theory of um, endocument. <laughs> and, 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 and by that, I think that I'm referring to, um, I think I'm referring to a different, an inflection on the journey to advancement on or for advancement. So, so spiritual paths, I, I like the way you said, um, um, you know, we can start out somewhere, maybe you're super racist, and then maybe with some personal practice, you're in this less racist, and then one day, presto, <laughs> you're Obama. <laughs> And you're not as racist. <laughs> you're not as racist. And it's a neat picture. I'll give you that. It's, I was raised in that picture as well. <laughs> I struggled with different traditions. And it was always about how do I take myself on this personal, this personal journey. Uh, it made it easier for me to grasp or come to terms with. But when you grow up in a collective culture, the individual, the personal, is not totally vanquished or, or made invisible, but it isn't given as much prominence as it is in individual-based culture and cultures. Um, collectivist cultures notice the, um, notice, the, um, notice the assemblage, if you will, instead of focusing on the unit. They notice the factory and not just the product, if you will, um, at least in my own appreciation of that. Um, and I think that in many regards, we have overestimated or overemphasized the importance of our personal journey. Uh, in fact, there's a name for it. They call it psychologism. Um, it's, it's about my healing. It's about my coming, becoming less racist. It's about how I understand things. It's about 
if I'm able to grasp it or not. It's about it's about this. It's about something within. Um, and so, in describing, for instance, uh, a hypothetical path of the individual racist becoming less racist, um, what we forget to include or what we forget to notice is that it's not an individual on a path to enlightenment or endarkenment, in my opinion, um, or as I hope it is the case. It's not, it's not that at all. It's the environment noticing itself. It's like, it's like the world examining its own body and experimenting with furtherance or, or what it means to be an individual or what it means to be alive. Like every single gesture that we take as individual is already collective in implication. Now, what I mean is that um, you're growing your beard out is not an individual choice that you made. You know, we, we, we grew up in rationalist uh, uh, systems that says it's mass decision, it's mass free will. So your choice is disembodied. It's this disembodied quality that allows you the freedom to make choices to the exclusion of other choices. But it doesn't tell you that cognition, emotions, and all those things you've taken to be individually yours, private and not public, you know, is already connected with ecology, with your ancestors, with your progeny. You are diffracted across time. How do we put toothpaste back into a tube? once you've let it out. That's the notion, that's the issue of the self that we're struggling with. Let me, let me break down, let, let me give an example about, about that, how for some, to go into psycho, um, research in cognitive psychology for instance, how some MIT researchers uh, write about embodied cognition or the external mind. So the idea, for instance, that I'm making a decision based on my own rational free will and free choice and uh, whatever, um, which, is, which is available only for me to wield. It's my own weapon. It's my inalienable right as a human being to make this choice, to have this quality. Um, what those MIT researchers actually examined and noticed is that how we think about the world, and it depends a lot on context, that the mind isn't something that is encased in our brains or in our bodies. Um, the mind is at large, if you will. It's spread out so that even judges, a judge in the federal, in a high court in the United States, who thinks that I'm well-trained, I can make a, a disinterested decision about this case before me, is actually being influenced by furniture, by, by how hard the furniture is that we are influenced by, by even bacteria in our guts, that biologists are calling it a second brain. That this microbiota, that this, this it, there's, a, there's a word for it in, in biology called the holobiont, basically. That we are composites all the way down. That this notion of a coherent self that is traveling along a path of advancement towards a brighter day, needs to be re-examined, not dismissed as inferior, uh, but needs to be troubled just a little bit to see if it can hold up weight under the storm of what's happening and changing in the world today. With regards to racism, for instance, I don't believe you can say that this guy is essentially racist or 
he's more racist than the other guy. As if racism is a feeling or a set of attributes or a set of, or a lack of attributes that is neatly conditioned and, and embodied in a single person. Passing through an airport one day, I noticed how things were arranged, for instance, and this is not to say it's bad or good. I, I would like us to disturb those binary configurations. Um, I was passing through the airport as I usually do every five minutes. Um, and, and to one end were, were the people who were natives of that land or citizens of that nation state. And I was not a citizen, I was visiting. People who were visiting were placed in one side and those who were citizens were placed on another side. And we were to pass this, uh, you know, we were, we were to wind our way up to the immigration boxes and to get our pack, uh, passport stamped and granted access. And I noticed how everything together, the furniture of the place, the cubicles, the stamps, the lights, everything was part of an assemblage that was producing or manufacturing how our bodies were moving. Um, how certain bodies were privileged over other bodies. The citizens were obviously privileged over us because we were, and this is not a state of black and white thing, it just happened that they're citizens, and so they were privileged over, over those that are non-citizens. Now, if you think in terms of assemblages, uh, there's a theory called assemblage theory that is by a guy called Deleuze, two guys, Deleuze and Gattari, and their work is quite unique and important in my opinion. Um, if you think about the world in terms of assemblages, then it's not whether he is racist or not, we're invited to notice how racism, the affect of denying other bodies privilege, is produced ecologically, politically. It's not about my personal, it's not about being kind. I, I love to watch CNN. And then, do you think Donald Trump is racist? You know, no, maybe he's a little bit racist or 50% racist or 70% racist. It essentializes and it loses sight of the other things that are co-producing bodies and co-producing um, mobility or co-producing potential and possibility. We don't notice these things because our perceptual habits teach us to think, what can I do? How can I progress? How can I become better? It doesn't notice that our food, the way we eat and the things we eat, even bacteria could produce racism or reinforce certain ways of seeing the world and behaving in the world that denies other bodies access or mobility or privilege. So I say endarkenment because I think it's time to turn to the shadows. I think we're falling off like the Greek, uh, the, the, the myth of Icarus. You know, we've, we've flown so high um, that the sun has melted our wings and we're falling rapidly to the earth. This is humiliating, but I love the word humiliation because it's about touching humus, the earth, the soil. And the soil is dark and lonely and rich and composting and disciplining. And this is where we must fall today. We will not arrive intact. We will not arrive in a place where we can say, I'm holy, I'm good, I've arrived, I'm, I'm special. We will, we will, and this is what witnessing is about, in my opinion. It's about suffering together with. It's about troubling the boundaries between you and me. It's about noticing the other, the collective, that is always a part of the manifold, and the manifold always a part of the individual. It's about noticing how large, and by large, I don't mean, I don't mean to, to palliate 
or to soften or to uh, appease the modern consciousness. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean to say we're, we're out of place, we're out of whack. And, and to come to terms with that is the work we have to do today. Bro, that was incredibly well put. I, uh, there's a lot that I want to kind of try to summarize in that, but it's, I, I 100% agree with what you're saying because we have this, it's kind of like the golden calf, you know, it's just like this thing and we're all like enlightenment is that thing and, you know, the new age and even, you know, religion kind of is like that too. It's like the afterlife or later and this is the thing we're going to focus on, this bright light, and we're not going to look at anything in the shadows. Meanwhile, in the shadows, we got homeless guy here, we got travesty over here we got that it's like no 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 we're gonna better ourselves in this and you know what if what if the stiff reality is you got to actually go do something and the real spiritual masters that i've met which you know uh, depending on what kind of bar you're setting but mine's pretty stiff um these people are selfless and they're humble and they're they don't they don't you know they're they're actually doing something and they, like they do hard work. It's, you know, um, when I was down in Guatemala with the Mayan elder, he's like, um, you can change the world, the word spirituality now to action, you know, actually doing something. And I think that that's what you're, what you're saying. And we need to break down some of these old ideas because, you know, even in self-development or the pursuit of, you know, being a better me, it's still not really understanding that, um, that long body, that other, that mm. impact, you know, like you can do those things, but also having a, a bigger awareness. And I kind of think about like, you know, your Instagram and uh, or what people put on social media, right? And like, we're looking at like, this is us at the best day, but we're not looking at us at the worst day. <laughs> and I think right. that, you know, people shadow work can get a little bit nuts too, but like shadow work for me is just like, just accepting that part of you it's like we're, we try to deny it we try to deny like the judgment well your mind will judge because that's what it's doing it'll also judge the speed of a car so when you cross the street it doesn't run you over so you might judge a person but you just don't hold on to it but you also accept that part of you as not like this dirty ugly thing like you know it's just like accepting all parts of yourself and all parts of the world as they are and from that mm. sitting in it, in that clear state of mind, you can have a greater awareness like you were talking about, mm. um, you know, the, the content and context. And this is something that came up in the, in the lesson I thought was really good is like understanding the context of the whole, the whole planet, humans interacting mm. with nature, acting with other humans, mm. with all these other things. Mm. You look at this whole context uh, m massively rather than just the content of yourself, your eye and your tiny little community and you know mm. your own self and you know the symbols you're putting on your your body in the driveway and things like that and just ultimately yeah. like the most basic thing just i guess going beyond materialism as well but, we've got a lot of work to do it, you, you know it, it's not even to say that we must necessarily have a global view it's mm. it, it, like um if you're if you're in toughness in the uk um it, it this this is not an ethical compulsion to know what um, Isolo or uh, Mushi in, in Nigeria or, or Chennai is thinking about. I, I think we are in a spot in history that, is, that makes the local international simultaneously so that we cannot get rid of these things. We're already impacted in large, increasingly, um, increasingly powerful ways by things that happen 
across the other side of the planet. And, and, and so it's, it's almost impossible to escape. But I, I, this, this is not an invitation to know what's happening across the world, not necessarily so. But it's an invitation to touch the circumstances of where we are. It's, it, it's about noticing to the, to, the, to the best of our ability, the, the context and the texture of our context and sitting with the troubling aspect of that long enough to, to appreciate the world in different ways and to probably become different. But like I think, um, I, forget, I forget who said this, but that we are collectively becoming exhausted with, be, with being and remaining human. And, and maybe it's time to, to shed skin and to become different. Now, I don't think there's such a thing, a monolithic entity as the human. I think we're different. Different in ways the language cannot comprehend or neatly compact or put together. Um, and I think it's important to notice that. But it's also important to notice that uh, we're, not in a, we're not in a singular path to enlightenment. Again, this is the... Um, this is the, we are all one. This is the danger we think we're all one together. We're all one. We're all brothers and sisters. It's a beautiful uh, thing to say, but it, it doesn't, it, it also has its costs, right? Like everything else in the world has its costs. Um, um, like you, brother, I was brought up into this world that says, world that says, strive to be a better you. Um, there's a better bio out there. You become the best buyer you can be, and you read all the positive psychology books and all the. Uh, I I got a crap load of that because I was I I grew up in Nigeria, or most of the time in Nigeria, and um, I you you have to read these Christian texts that invite you to not settle for the ordinary, to strive for the extraordinary, and I think it's well intentioned. But here's the question to all of that. Is it possible to become a better particle? Um, you, you probably know a bit about quantum physics. At least there's, a, there's this popular apprehension. Yeah, no one, everyone knows this much. Uh, it's just about this size for everyone, even those who are experts. <laughs> um, but there's, a, there's this, there's this uh, experiment with light, for instance. The, 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 dual theory of light and wave collapse and all of that, that, that speaks about an experiment called the dual slit experiment, basically, that tried to examine what the true nature of light was. So the, the, the conversation was, what's the exact nature of light? Again, that's the modern impulse. The modern impulse is to categorize in a final sense. It's to say, this is math. That's it. That's not math. The world can only be math and not math. You understand? But where, we're, where it seems we're, we are at the moment is math is not math. <laughs> like, they, like you are you're part of your contradiction. You're, you're not as stable as you think. So they, they said, let's find out what the true nature of life is, okay? And um, as you might know already, um, under certain conditions in the experiment, the apparatus with which they used to measure this, the phenomenon of light, produced particles. Now, the, the experiment or the conversation across, uh, across the pond, if you will, was between those who said light is fundamentally, 
fundamentally, mind you, is essentially a particle. It's essentially particulate. The other said, nope, it's a wave. It's wave-like. It's non, you cannot localize it. It's spread out. It's not a particle. It's not particulate. Um, but they found out that something complementary about the nature of light or the nature of anything for that matter, that under certain conditions, the apparatus produced, and I cannot go deep into it, the apparatus produced particles as light. But, but under other conditions, which involved um, um, the observation, the introduction of observation, or I should say that under certain conditions, lights behave like a wave. When they introduce an observational element to that apparatus, that measurement, lights behave like a particle. Which is, which is queer in itself, that under certain conditions, light is this, under certain conditions, it is that, if you will. That, that totally undercuts the whole argument of being a better you. Because it says basically that um, you are you're you're always going to be a fragment of something, it, not a part of a larger whole, but we are necessarily holistically fragmented. So that just being you is exclusionary. Something has already been excluded from happening. For light to become a particle, it has to exclude itself from being a wave. For it being to be a wave, it has to exclude the particle. How do you become how do you chart a course of progress when something has already been cut out? How do you become full and a complete and wholly yourself, authentically yourself, when something else is necessarily excluded from the picture just to be embodied? So this is this is the point of endocument then that we learn to acquaint ourselves with the particle if we're behaving like waves. And if we're behaving like particles, we have to notice the waves. And in a sense, poetically speaking, and come to terms with a world that is always partial, that is never whole. The, uh, there's a beautiful goddess in India called Akilandeshvari, and uh, her name means the one who is never not broken. In a sense, we're never not broken. So this reach for wholeness, this reach for arrival is already queered by a world that is bigger than ourselves. Um, yeah. That's incredible, man. I really, I agree with that a hundred percent and you put it in such a, a great way. The way that I've kind of been coming to terms with that idea recently more and more is just kind of um, operating from a state of completion and like incompletion. You know, it's like to say, your daughter is not complete at four. It's like, you need to read some Tony Robbins. <laughs> you know what I mean? It'd just be ridiculous. And then so we're, <laughs> so we're kind of moving through this process, always feeling incomplete. And Alan Watts will talk about it just to talks about the absurdity of personal development or like self-help. He's just like, who is helping who? It's like the absurd thing. And you, you put it in, a, in such a, a cool perspective for me and a new window to deepen my understanding of that. And I think that's where kind of coming to grips to is like letting go of that idea of perfection. It's understanding it's, it's unattainable and just embodying what we are embodying where we are at that time. Um, one of the teachings I had from the elder was uh, contentment. And um, it was just like, can you be content right now? And not so much about like where you are in the world, but with who you are with what you've done 
with what you have, with what you know, and with what you're doing at that time? Can you actually experience contentment? You know, rather than if you're with the daughter and you're thinking about the article you got to write or things like that, you know, just being fully present in it. And it takes a lot of stress off of getting somewhere, right? It's kind of the carrot on the end of the stick. We're always getting somewhere. When I read this book, then I'll know. When I have this experience, then I'll know and I'll be somewhere else and I'll be something or have a state of mind. So um, operating from a state of like completion, but like incompletion at the same time, just understanding that you are limited. You're the particle of the wave. Like Alan Watson's another good one saying like, you're a wave in the ocean, just experiencing itself for a moment of separation connected to the whole thing, you know, popping down. So a beautiful way you put it, man. Um, I want to be respectful of your time because I know it's like three, now it's like 4.30 a.m. where you are, something crazy. Good conversation, Dan. I didn't notice the time. <laughs> oh, good. Well, yeah, man, just, you know, you really, just everything you put was, uh, it was very wonderfully put and, and well stated and, and such good um, perspectives to think about because that's, you know, what your ideas are, what I've been coming coming to and deepening and accepting those more and more. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a... <clears throat> It's kind of like, it's weird because it's a balance of like, you know, I know if I put these practices in, I'll get a result, but also doing it from a state of like, I'm okay where I am in that process and just really getting, getting in touch with the process, getting in touch with that moment, getting in touch with, with where I am at that space and having faith in the whole bigger picture and the context that I'm in. Um, But is there anything that you wish that I had asked or that you want to talk about? You could feel free to elaborate as long as you wish. Um, But Hmm. So, so, so I'll, I'll say this, you know, maybe this is final words, final, final, final story. We, we like to tell stories. You're about people like to tell stories. I'm, I'm actually writing a book right now and it's about the, uh, it's about the, the, uh, it's about issue. Issue is a trickster figure. And the, and the most troubling god of a pantheon in Yoruba land. And he's crazy. He's just, a, his epistemology is Confucian. And by Confucian, if you check out the, the, the root word, the etymology of Confucian, it, it means mingling together. Mingling together. Um, so that Confucian is a way, a way to this. In, is in some sense a way to describe entanglement. It's a way to describe how things mix, unmix, how difference occurs, how th- bodies become homogeneous, how they lose their homogeneity, how they lose structure, how they become sturdy. These are interesting things to examine today in a, in a time when we're noticing that we are not, we're not, we're not that hot, you know, we're not that great as a species. <laughs> we're, we're not all that. To put it in an American sense, we are we are kind of we're kind of messed up all over the place, and it's okay. Yeah, it's okay, I guess. Um, so I I I felt that one of the the strands that emerged for me in our conversation was the strand of what do I do? It, it there's a very strong sense of um, an urge for agency, social change, language. Um, representation that is uh, how do I how do I do something about it and it's beautiful it's a beautiful urge it's a beautiful impulse and we need a place to hospice that to to hold 
space for that. Um, not to banish it, not to dismiss it, not to say you're not spiritually adequate, not to say you're not aware of other what, what other people are thinking. We kind of shut down the conversation. But to actually hold these feelings and these urges and these impulses, we don't have spaces for that. And I'm hoping to be part of spaces to do that. Um, um, and so to that, I want to tell a story. And this is, of course, like I said, the final bit. Um, it's about a, the Turtist, where I come from. The Turtist is a powerful trickster figure. As I understand a coyote to be a trickster figure in America, uh, Br'er Rabbit. Br'er Rabbit actually came from West Africa through the Middle Passage of the Transatlantic slave trade. Um, so lots of these realities are already mixed. Um, but Turtis, or Ijafa, as the Yoruba people call him, um, decides to know everything. He decides to go on a path of self-development, if you will, to language the world, describe it in a final sense, and master it. And so think of him as an employee of Google, if you will. You know, Google's datalization or digitalization of the world is almost like what Kizafar tried to do a long time ago. And so what he tried to do was basically find out the true knowledge about everything. So if you go to the eagle, how do you fly? And you write to death. And, and he puts it in a calabash, a gourd that is hanging in front of his body on his neck via uh, a thin thread. And he goes to Matt, how do you grow a beard? And Matt says, this is how. And he puts that wisdom in the gourd. He goes to Trump, how do you have great hair? Ironically, <laughs> and he puts that, he, he, he goes everywhere. He goes to the ocean, to the sky, to rock, and indexes reality, in a sense. Don't ask me how he did that, but he does it. And everything there is to know about everything is captured in that calabash hanging on this creature's neck. And so when you have that kind of infinitely valuable treasure, what do you do with it? You store it, right? You keep it. And so he decides to keep it in the place that is most inaccessible to everyone. At the top of the Iroko tree, the highest, the most noble, the sternest of all trees. Because it also has, um, it also produces fruit, I believe, I think, that look like the bottom of a calabash. And so he decides, he decides to disguise it there. The problem is, Tertius is quite abbreviated, if you know what I mean. His limbs are short, and so he cannot quite wrap his hand around the tree. And so every time he tries to climb the tree to get to the top of it, he cannot even wrap his hands around conveniently because the calabash is hanging in front of his neck. And so he's struggling. He maybe gets a grip for a second, gets halfway, and slides all the way down. And he keeps on doing this for days on end and never quite succeeds. Until, of course, in some stories it's a grasshopper, in some stories it's his thumb, but I prefer the grasshopper iteration of the story. The grasshopper is believed to be the stupidest animal. And so the grasshopper comes along and says, you know, I've been watching you for a while now, and I just wanted to tell you this. Give it a shot. See if it helps. Why don't you just put the, you know, the calabash that's hanging from your neck on your back? Mind expanding, isn't it? So. See ya. <laughs> and Curtis is like totally embarrassed because 
um, well, the stupidest of animals has just spoken to the wisest of creatures. And so he just puts it on his back, successfully climbs the tree after a couple of tries, and then gets to the top and realizes how defunct his entire project is. Because here's, he, he deemed it fit to categorize a motioning and moving and fluid world and to categorize it and to stabilize it in a final sense or final gesture. But the world always moves. The world is never still. And it's larger than us. And so instead of storing his product, he releases it into the wild and lets it get free. And that's how we're able to think and work and walk and realize and understand and make relationships in the world today. And I tell that story because um, the project of modernity is also meeting um, very strong obstacles. I started with obstacles, I end with obstacles. It's meeting very powerful obstacles. The obstacle of the material world, the obstacle of our own bodies, the obstacles. And, and rhetoric is this, this language and idea that we can still pass all these obstacles if only we put our sentences together, if only we tell the right story, if only we're enlightened. But we are met by things that, are, that exceed us. How, what do we do when we stand in front of a monster, when we can no longer proceed? What do we do when we're at the end of hope? What kind of rituals are, are invited in a place of hopelessness? How do we die properly? What does it even mean to die properly? What does demise invite us to notice and to play with? Is there some carnivalesque way of being in the world that we fail to notice in our linear trajectory teleological uh, system that leads to this brighter day, down the path, down the tarmac to a brighter future? Or is there, is there this time diffracted in the here and now? Do we live in a thick now that invites us to stay and notice differently and acquaint ourselves with the monsters that we've excluded in our attempts to build civilization? Um, this is the question that I end with. I have no answer to that. I just have a vocation and an invitation. And I thank you for the invitation to talk with you, Matthew. Amazing, man. Those are really beautiful words. And uh, I, this is an awesome story. And uh, yeah, man, all of that was epic. And I 100% agree. And it's, it's challenging. It's a, it's a definitely a, yeah. a challenging perspective. And um, yeah, it but it's beautiful. And I think it's real, you know. And, and for me, it, it, you know, honestly, I don't think anybody gets out now without getting like that good old humble stick. And I've uh, had a bunch in my life, but you know, the search of reading all those books and stuff like that and, and kind of the and darkenment is, is a true thing, you know? And I think that for me, it's, it's, it's almost a process of, again, it's like accumulate knowledge and then let go accumulate knowledge and then or, or ideas anyway <laughs> and that and i like when you talk about languaging it because really we have no idea what the hell's going on you know i think right. that the people who are more confident that they know what's going on they they really have no they know what's going on less <laughs> because it's it's unknowable and it's mysterious yeah. but i love the invitations and uh i just want to thank you for coming on thank you for staying up late 3 a.m to do this and uh, a challenging day <clears throat> but you showed up and uh, even when I, uh, you said you could reschedule, but thank you for your work and everything you're doing. Thank you for what you're sharing. And uh, I just appreciate you. And if I can support you in any way, let me know. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much for a rich conversation. Thank you.
My pleasure. See everybody. Bye. Bye. All right, guys, I hope that you enjoyed that episode with Bio. I know that I did. He is very intelligent and versatile with a very interesting background. Um, If you liked it, please share this on Facebook. Uh, Let me know where you're listening all around the world on Instagram. Tag me at Matt Belair, and that uh, helps to get the word out there, as well as reviews and Patreon if you want to support. But the best thing to do is one kind act today. Spread the vibe by doing an actual action of kindness. I really do appreciate you guys doing that. If you're interested in coaching, or you want some consulting, um, whether it's uh, training employees, you want me to talk about peak performance, flow state, uh, spirituals, psychology, positive mindset, all of that kind of stuff. I've opened up to helping more people. So just make an inquiry at mattbelair.com forward slash coaching and I will happily uh, talk to you, talk to your employees, talk to your group and help you guys level up and learn all of these great principles for uh, making an impact but doing it from an empowered, centered, congruent, fulfilled sort of way. And that's really the... Um, most ideal way to do it is to do it in balance. So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, We will catch you in the next episode. And before we close it out, let's come to a state of peace and coherence. So wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and just let it out slowly. With all the cares, all the worries, coming to a state of peace, coherence, and empowerment. Have an amazing day, and I will see you in the next episode.